This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, Friday night, I was standing by myself in the uh, junk food aisle of H Mart, which I had not been to since coronavirus locked everything down. And I used to go there and buy junk food for the bar before office hours. And uh, it was so damn sad. (laughs) (laughs) Staring at the honey butter chips and the shrimp chips, thinking, uh, when can I buy more junk food for everyone else? Sad drive home eating an entire 12 count uh, (laughs) banana (laughs) banana Kit Kat. (laughs) I. uh... Spent the weekend suffering in pain. No, I don't have COVID, but my other stupid, ridiculous pains have come back. Is that your front, your back, or oh, your side? My front is then back. It's, oh, my arm. Yeah, all three of them. It was a real combination of events. At one point, I was I had ice wrapped around my wrist, my elbow, my shoulder. I had ice on my lower back, and I was in horrible stomach pain. Actually, up to about 45, 48 minutes ago, I wasn't too sure if I was going to be able to do today's show, but I wanted to struggle through because I can't believe the timeliness of uh, uh, today's guest. And on today's show, excessive force by police and crime can and are both being slashed with the revolutionary model of policing that is already in place and succeeding on both counts. Yes, we can have less abusive crimes and or less abusive police and fewer illegal acts that threaten our safety. And we do not need to import some European model of cops that you know would never work here in the States. This new policing practice is called the Camden model, and it's so big with the liberal set that it made the front page of the Sunday New York Times yesterday. The Times analysis was critical, feigning balance and objectivity as usual, until ending predictably with praise for what the Times considers community policing. In reality, according to returning guest and criminologist Brendan McQuaid, who last week posted the Jacobin Magazine article, the Camden model is not a model, it's an obstacle to real change. The model is based on working with the community as much as it is working the community for information in a system of mass surveillance. But hey, at least the cops are not as violent and there's less crime, right? While that's true, what's also more accurate is the Camden model is proof metrics can be addressed without doing anything about the conditions that cause crime, namely poverty and abuses of capitalism. In other words, the Camden model undermines police abuse and crime, but does nothing about the immiseration of life for the exploited class. For us. So, F the Camden model. Brendan is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and the author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Surveillance, which we discussed with Brendan back in December of 2019. That interview is at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on, or when you search on McQuaid, M-C-Q-U-A-D-E. And in that conversation, we discussed the more historical context and process of the Camden model. Today, we're going to go into a more bigger picture about the Camden model and why it's suddenly being embraced as a success in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is, oh, watermelon, which we may have offered as a hangover cure at some point in the past, but we have no idea. In a 2018 Healthline.com article, which we will be referencing for several months, (laughs) uh, titled The 23 Best (laughs) Hangover Foods, registered dietitian Lizzie Strait writes, since headache associated with a hangover is usually due to dehydration and decreased blood flow to the brain, eating watermelon may help. Oh, it may. There you go. <laughs> uh, watermelon is rich in L-citrulline, a nutrient which may increase, may also increase mm-hmm. blood flow. What's more, it is high water content may help you rehydrate. Another article at Healthline, they report that watermelon may also improve heart health, as well as prevent muscular degeneration and cancer. Macular degeneration and cancer. I might be having macular degeneration. That would be nice to, to end cancer. Jeez. Watermelon should be flying off the shelves. I think uh, May is doing a lot of work over here. Yeah, I think so, too. That makes this week's Hangover Cure watermelon, maybe. Maybe. It may also prevent macular degeneration and cancer. Maybe. Who knows? I think it's a miracle drug. This is not the media. This is hell. For the last three weeks, we've been starting each Monday's show 
with an update on how Hitler Trump had gone over the weekend after three straight weekends of his willful ignorance tour in Tulsa, Florida, and then at Mount Rushmore had spread the virus of the pandemic and the virus of fascism by dehumanizing sections of the population as animals, Trump seemed to turn it down a notch this weekend, all the way down from the genocidal mania of Hitler to the corrupt cronyism of Mussolini when it commuted the sentence of longtime friend Roger Stone, whose sentence was considered fair by another Trump sycophant. Attorney General William Barr. But as promised, I spent this weekend writing a letter in response to that letter. You know, that letter that was all the rage last Wednesday when everyone was commenting on social media about the latest, freshest Twittering world debate that is of utmost societal and cultural importance, the content of which shakes our worldviews to their very core. You know, the letter most of you heard about, already forgot about, and those of you who did not hear about that letter... Eh, you probably don't care. So at this point, I was going to mention how my letter-writing skills are very rusty, that I've only sent emails, instant and direct messages, tweets, and texts. So my writing skills were pretty old-fashioned at this point, and I was going to write a rebuttal in the style of a Civil War soldier writing home, like, Dear Mater, the culture wars are getting worse by the day. Our rations are in few supply, but our spirits are high as we prepare for the next volley of tweets from the rebels. Uh, but the joke wore kind of thin, so instead, it's stream of consciousness time again. The letter that got everyone in a twittering tizzy last week was titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate and was posted at Harper's Magazine's website, a magazine that I swear only gets their writers on our show because I never see them anywhere else. It's almost as if, other than this letter, Harper's has been a victim of cancel culture. Harper's posted the letter last week, but it won't be in their print edition until October, which comes out in September. In other words, by the time the letter goes into print and is delivered to all Harper subscribers at a very reasonable rate, and retail outlets that sell Harper's, who the hell knows what will happen between now and then? The only thing that's certain is by then, the time by the time the magazine hits newsstands and mailboxes, everyone will have forgotten about the whole thing, much in the way they already have. Such is the case for our ephemeral Twittering world and just as short-lived Twittering critiques it engenders. Nonetheless, last week the letter, that letter, was causing quite the uproar because of both its content and who had signed said open letter. The gist is there is concern about the state of debate because of what is described as a stifling atmosphere that will ultimately harm the most vital causes of our time, the restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. The way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument, and persuasion, not by trying to silence or wish them away. Sure, okay, I get it. They're against cancel culture without actually saying those two words, which kind of undermines their letter against cancel culture when they refuse to use the words cancel culture, which have been apparently the victims of cancel culture in the letter. So not only has Harper's been the victim of cancel culture by fewer and fewer people seemingly interested in what they publish, but so is the letter itself having canceled the terms cancel culture within the letter condemning cancel culture. It's quite a loop. Problem is, if you sign the letter opposing cancel culture, that does so without using the cancel culture words, then it's very possible the cancel culture kids will be canceling you too, unsubscribing, unfo unfollowing, and telling anyone who follows or shares any content that the signatory posted that they're also in threat of being canceled through guilt by association, which means the people who signed that letter and appeared on This Is Hell in the past should be reconsidered as future guests, and we should even rethink sharing any of our interviews that we have ever done with any of them. That means rethinking our relationships with Noam Chomsky, Michelle Goldberg, who's kidding who, we quit having her on the show a long time ago, long before she was shilling for Elizabeth Warren on the Times editorial page while her husband was a Warren campaign worker without really acknowledging that, although she did sometimes. Adam and Arlie Russell Hochschild, we got to reconsider them. Hussein Ibish, who hasn't been on the show in 15 years. Laura Kipnis, John MacArthur, I don't know why we had him on in the first place. Was I trying to get some kind of MacArthur Foundation grant or something? I have no idea. Samuel Moyne, George Packer, it was a mistake to have him on once, but it was when he was oddly against the war with Iraq. Katha Pollitt, but really, were we ever going to have her back on again? Anne-Marie Slaughter, who we talked to once like 15 years ago. And Adnar Usmani. 
And for a brief moment, I was disappointed that of all the concerns in the world of everything facing us today, whether it's climate change, a global pandemic, increasing authoritarianism and popularity of fascism, an uprising against police violence that challenges our violent relationship with capital, that somehow cancel culture would take up so much of all of these people's time and energy. The worst part is they signed a letter that was also signed by pure freaking evil, like David Brooks, David Frum, Francis Fukuyama, Steven Pinker, apparently J.K. Rowling's evil now, and Barry Weiss, the New York Times op-ed writer whose most recent offering is late May's column, Joe Rogan is Mainstream Media, which couldn't be farther from the truth. For it to be mainstream, everybody would have to know how to get Joe Rogan's podcast. Exactly. How can anything be mainstream when the vast majority of people have no idea of how or where to get the content. So Weiss seems to be prone to exaggeration, and that fits perfectly with concerns over cancel culture. Weiss was also probably saddened that the letter she co-signed on cancel culture was a victim of cancel culture, and that it may have made the front page of her New York Times, but it sure as hell wasn't on the nightly news or the cable TV outlet. So in effect, their open letter against cancel culture was the victim of corporate cancel culture. You know, the corporate cancel culture that has effectively canceled shows like ours, shows with content like ours, shows that give a venue to perspectives that criticize the shortcomings of our representative democracy when it comes to be an actual democracy, that are critical of the brutal abuses capitalism imposes upon those who are not wealthy so they will continue as low-wage labor for the benefit of those who do not work, who make money as their money makes money, and ride around the lap of luxury in private jets on a regular basis from mansion to mansion, driven from jet to mansion by chauffeured limousine, while the rest of us might be able to fly once a year, only see mansions on guided tours, and if we were ever in a limousine, it was because a relatively rich friend was getting married. Yeah, that corporate cancel culture that will not allow words like neoliberalism to be mentioned, let alone it being a concept that should be discussed or debated. The corporate cancel culture that agrees to not show the wars the U.S. is engaging in at this moment that citizens back home have been kept nearly clueless about for years, decades. Or what about the land grabs being done by U.S. corporations around the world devastating biodiversity through monocrops, as we learned from Craig Hetherington in his book, government of beans on last wednesday's show and you really gotta listen to that interview who's complaining about cancel culture the junior senator of georgia kelly loffler who is one of the owners of the wnba team the atlanta dream she said that the backlash from her team the league against her statements in opposition to black lives matter is an attack on her free speech the ceo of goya foods who came out with a ringing endorsement of president trump last week also complained that calls for a boycott of goya was limiting his freedom of speech Now, you may not have heard, but I gave quite a speech in my home in opposition to the Trump presidency this weekend, but it didn't make the New York Times or any mainstream media. That's because while we do have freedom of speech, and I was exercising it this weekend, there certainly is an equality of speech, and a junior senator who owns a WNBA team and the CEO of Goya's free speech has a lot more power than my free speech. In fact, there is speech inequality in the United States with those who are the wealthiest being given the most access to media outlets. This all leads to the argument made by P.K. Moskowitz on last year's show from their book, The Case Against Free Speech and the Undermining of Free Speech by Our Unequal Society Enforced by Capitalism and the Market. But with both the Goya CEO and women's basketball team owning Senator, their freedom of speech has not been limited. What both are saying is, I am making a statement. If you want to support it, like it, share it, please do. But anyone who criticizes it or is upset about my statement, that's an infringement of my freedom of speech. Criticism in this worldview is unconstitutional as it is a threat to freedom of speech. But with all these horrible people who signed the letter, we should definitely reconsider having the past guests who also signed onto that letter back on our show, right? So Samuel Moyne replied to the backlash of signing the letter by writing in The Guardian, I don't know who else would sign it when I did, but I reserve the right to criticize many of them, not just for their own hypocritical patrolling of speech in the past, but also for their regularly disastrous ideas supporting economic and geopolitical catastrophe is far worse than participating in evanescent twitter mobs or even more harmful censorship would the signers of the letter have put their name on something that others who they vociferously condemned had already signed well we do know that some like historian carrie greenridge bailed after seeing who else signed and insisted their name be removed 
How much input did the signers have on the content of the letter? It's uncertain, but if they did not know who signed it, the amount of input from the dozens and dozens of signatories is probably minimal. So the letter writing wasn't like a constitutional convention or an open debate like we're told happened during the writing of the Declaration of Independence. The degree to which this letter on open debate was open for debate is open to debate. Debate is important, of course, but what is the state of political debate that we are somehow trying to save? Political debate in the U.S. has dwindled to yelling matches on cable news where four boxes show the moderator and three people yelling over one another. Now there's something we could use an open letter to condemn that kind of coverage, that kind of debate. This week, the debate that's worthy of our defense was highlighted by future President Tucker Carlson calling future Vice President Tammy Duckworth a coward and questioning her patriotism while Duckworth hit back by doubting whether Carlson really knew what patriotism was. Yeah, that's some debate we need to protect from cancel culture. As you know, our goal here on This Is Hell is to always bring the kind of keen analysis offered by our guests that you cannot get anywhere else. And we promise to never disappoint. That's why after a thorough analysis, after a complete forensic study of this issue, it has become increasingly obvious. Open letters are stupid and are as effective as effective as any online petition you have ever signed. Yes, this open letter got everybody in a Twitter for a few days, but by now, for those who paid any attention at all, it's all ancient history as the speed of social media erases everything in its wake. The real cancel culture, the one that everyone should be far more concerned about, is the cancel culture that cancels out all alternatives to our current misery. Go back and listen to our interview with Cindy Milstein on her collection of essays on real alternatives to the current system that are taking place all over the world and have been for decades. And not one of those uprisings has been reported on our nightly news. There's not on your, on your nightly news. Not one of those alternatives has been reported in the corporate media. Or find our talk with Brianna Foss on black, manifest, uh, black feminist manifestos, many of which contain the concepts of humanity and liberation necessary for true political and social transformation, all of which has been canceled by a corporate culture of information sharing and public debate that is stifling to any concept of democracy or community. The real cancel culture is the demonization of anything that can bring about true transformative change. And that's why this is hell. Coming up, the Camden model of policing Barack Obama loves, so you can bet Joe Biden will be touting it as the next great thing, and don't be surprised if it gets bipartisan support too, is actually nothing more than a mass surveillance police state that turns a community into an open-air prison. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. Everybody's pushing the Camden model of policing as some great success of community policing, which is all the rage with the establishment media and the powers that be. But on closer inspection, the Camden model may not be all it's cracked up to be. Worse, it also might be a way to fix the police without addressing the capitalist conditions, namely poverty and institutional racism, that actually create and cause crime. Returning to This Is Hell, criminologist Brendan McQuaid wrote the Jacobin article, The Camden Model is Not a Model, It's an Obstacle to Real Change. Brendan is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and the author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Surveillance, which we spoke with Brendan about back in December. And you can hear that interview at thisishell.com. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brendan. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chuck. You were the last person we had as a guest in 2019, and so 2020 has been going great so far for us. How about you, Brendan? Uh, it's been, you know, it's been interesting. Um, you know, it's been exciting since, you know, there's been a lot of activity since George the George Floyd protest, so... Um, looking up from the COVID lockdown. So uh, you write they're doing it again in 2015. President Obama used Camden, New Jersey as a prop to announce the findings of the president's task force on 21st century policing, a package of procedural reforms to address the post-Ferguson crisis of police legitimacy. Now, Camden, New Jersey is a prop for police reforms in wake of Ferguson. That's a 
odd thing. In fact, Camden's police made the front page of the Sunday New York Times yesterday as the Times described Camden as a city where more than 90% of the residents are black or Latino. Slightly more than half of the police force's 400 officers are people of color. And as is true in other cities, many Camden officers live in suburbs beyond the poor and working class neighborhoods they patrol. Brendan, can any model, Camden's, or any alternative address community concerns over policing when the police are not representative of the community and, far more importantly, are not from or part of that community? To you, how critical is it for police to be representative of the community they police and from the community they're sworn to serve and protect? Well, for me, the problem isn't where police live. It's what they're asked to do. And I don't mean what they're asked to do in the sense of that you'll hear from you know, um, more progressive liberals today saying, well, police are asked to do too much. They shouldn't be doing public health. They shouldn't be doing mental health, right? What I mean is that the the role of policing itself is, you know, um, not only is it it oppressive, but it's, uh, you know, it works to constantly maintain a, you know, uh, an exploitative system. You know, the problems that we ask police to manage they're actually maintaining, right? So whether the police live in Camden or they live in a nice neighborhood, a nice suburb, or over in Philadelphia, it doesn't matter. Uh, Policing won't solve a city's problems. That was the next question I was going to ask you, because uh, you write that in the mid-20th century, Camden was home to 365 different industries that employed 51,000 people. By the early 80s, the city had lost nearly 32,000 jobs, including 28,700 in manufacturing. Population collapsed, dropping 40% from its 1950 peak of 125,000. By the time the 2010 census came around, the beleaguered city of 77,000 was 48% black. 47% Hispanic. Over a third of residents live below the poverty line. If one of the characteristics of the financialized global economy is the mass expulsion of once-included workers from the formal economy and social order more generally, then Camden is ahead of the curve. So um, this gets back to what you were just saying. Can you solve whatever social problems are plaguing Camden with policing? If the problem is one of financialized globalization, to what extent can policing solve the problems of financialized globalization. Well, I guess the the danger with the Camden model is that, you know, from a ruling class perspective, right, Camden does work, right? They were able to, you know, uh, keep keep a lid on crime. Like crime went down and they created an opportunity. They they turned Camden from like a poster child of urban decay into into a city that could get large capital investments. You know, the the crime rate in Camden is still unacceptably high. Uh, The poverty rate is still, you know, um, absurd. You know, uh, yeah, still still extremely high, Um, 37% as of a July 2019 estimate. Um, But, you know, the city now has, you know, big corporations in uh, doing business, the, the... you know, the, the market has improved, uh, politicians have traded on, you know, Camden to uh, say that they can, they can fix the, you know, the, the problems of, of urban poverty. What Camden really is, is a new way of modeling, of managing those problems while still keeping, you know, still keeping the, the economy churning, while still, you know, keeping the, the uh, yeah, keeping products moving. And you write about how this allows for a lack of a reckoning with the failures of police and capital. You write leading organizations on the ground in Minneapolis like Black Visions Reclaim the Block and MPD 150 have explicitly rejected the Camden model. And for good reason, the current Camden fetish is an attempt to avoid any real reckoning with the failures of police and capital. It's an attempt to recalibrate state violence in the guise of progressive reform. Camden is not a model. It's an obstacle to real change. In your opinion, why is real reckoning with the failures of police and capital necessary in addressing and solving racialized police violence and the epidemic of police abuse of all kinds. After all, here we are in Camden. They didn't address any problems with uh, police or capital, and they were able to have a decrease in excessive force complaints against police, as well as a decrease in crime. So doesn't this prove that we do not have to have a reckoning with the police or capital in order to address the problems that we do have with the police and crime? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what you want to do. 
you know, do you want to manage crime through uh, the, you know, the, the violence of the police and the structural violence of other, you know, um, other social policy interventions? Or do you want to, you know, transcend this social problem? Do you want to resolve, you know, uh, violent interpersonal harms? Right? Have a society that doesn't have people victimizing each other and harming each other. You know, um, policing, you know, uh, policing practices don't matter as much as, you know, um, we often think they do on, on crime rates. But, you know, there are better or worse ways to do things. But to me, the the, the more important question is, do we, you know, is is this something we even want to do? Is policing, you know, the the um, the way to address uh, social problems? So I, you know, subscribe to a, a you know, a, a well-defined um, tradition in, in, you know, Marxism and in scholarship in general, you know, that views police in particular, but the, the criminal justice system more broadly as, you know, the mechanism that continually you know, uh, not just defends the order of private property, but creates the conditions for it to, to thrive, right? So I'm not, you know, I think in, you know, 2020 with the world on fire, with <laughs> Nazis back, with, you know, the very real specter of, like, civilizational collapse confronting us in, in a few decades, uh, we need to, you know, we need systems transition. And police, police are not part of systems transition, right? They're about you know, systems ma- systems maintenance. The Camden model is often claimed to be a success for community policing. We were recently discussing the shortcomings of defunding the police with Max Rameau and Netfa Freeman, co-authors of the Black Agenda Report article, Community Control versus Defunding the Police, a Critical Analysis. They argued that not only that defunding could lead to the wealthy hiring their own privatized police force with even less oversight that could potentially be more brutal, Instead, the focus should be on, they were arguing, implementing community policing, which would be far less oppressive. However, as the Times article pointed out yesterday, the Camden Department embraced community policing, instructing officers to talk with residents at every opportunity, but aggressive foot patrols led to a surge in the enforcement of the lowest level offenses, like riding a bike without a light. Some residents complained about heavy-handed treatment, but others supported the new strategy. The number of murders eventually started to fall, and children who had been kept indoors ventured outside. Still, after the high-profile police killings of Michael Brown and Ferguson, Eric Garner in New York, the police adopted to a softer approach. So how can community policing, which our guests believe should be the focus rather than defunding the police, actually promote the kinds of abuse that community policing is supposed to defend the public against? Why did Camden's, and more importantly, why might any city's community policing become abusive as Camden's if they adopt Camden's model? I mean, community policing is, you know, we should name it for what it is. It's, you know, counterinsurgency. It's organizing, you know, it's the police, the state, organizing the population to, you know, proactively and voluntarily support state security initiatives. So when I lived in Chicago in 2014 and 2015, and a, yeah, I worked with a We Charge Genocide on a uh, the counter-caps report a, you know, a study of, you know, of community policing in Chicago. And what did we find? We found that, you know, community policing doesn't uh, involve, you know, doesn't bring meaningful neighborhood control over the community. Participation is abysmally low in these uh, community beat meetings where, you know, community members and police are supposed to work together to define to find their public um, safety issues and address them proactively. Instead, what happens is police organize a self-selecting law and order lobby to amplify what police do. So this can mean a lot of things. It can mean just reporting information to police. It can mean organized campaigns against, you know, certain buildings that are viewed as disorderly, where people will call in noise complaints and complaints about, you know, uh, all sorts of permits, the the length of uh, the grass, whatever they can find, just to establish that this is a problem property and justify a police intervention, right? Unsurprisingly, this you know this type of uh, community police organization, police organizing of the community, you know at least in Chicago, we found interacted with gentrifying gentrification in, in predictable ways, right? Um, 
so community policing is kind of the public face of of you know the, the police organizing the community it's also you know an intelligence collection effort you know it's a way to to gather information you know from from the community now the community control of the police is 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 a little different it's the idea to get like an elected body that would have rigorous control over the police you know i think that's a fine short-term measure and i would like to see it combined with what miriam kaba um has called for like a 50 percent reduction of police you know focus police on investigating violent and white collar crimes for that matter uh their clearance rates are terrible you know um you know not just with things like sexual violence but you know also just with murder um so focus the police, narrow the police down to an investigative agency, focus them on, uh, you know, bring rigorous oversight, that's fine. But if you're thinking about, you know, systems transition, if you're thinking about uh, how how is humanity getting collectively confront the problems, you know, coming down the pike uh, from climate change and the refugee crisis and all the instability that will come with that, you know, I don't think, you know, any security measure like policing is going to help us. What we need instead is, you know, a a recreation of social order in a way that, you know, is not organized around private property and the endless accumulation of private wealth, but is based on, you know, collective flourishing. So the the thing that I always try to argue is that the opposite of the police, and this this was quite clear in early writings on the police idea, the opposite of the police is the commons, right? And there's a certain social democratic common sense that fits through this, and I defund the police, fund, you know, Bernie's platform. But then there's something greater, you know, that the, that the rebellions have called into 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 being, right? So what would our what would our unpoliced cities look like? What would our cities look like if they weren't built around private property? What would our cities look like if they weren't, you know, uh, places for speculative investment? What would they look like if they were built for human flourishing? You know, and what would that mean for things like, you know, uh, conflict mediation, right? What are autonomous, you know, community-based bodies to, you know, uh, interrupt violence and to redress harms that have been created? So abolitionists out there have lots of good ideas, and, you know, there's lots to be said about this. Uh, you know, and I don't think policing should be part of the discussion. So community control of the police, that you know, that's great for, a, you know, short-term uh, orderly de-policing, right? But it's not, it's not part of a long-term uh, solution. One of the concerns I had is if the uh, Camden model avoids any real reckoning with the failures of police and capital, what do you think is the likelihood that this could get the kind of bipartisan support Democrats and the media love? How much do you think that this might lead to, this might be the outcome? Like, what was it, last time it was body cams, and that's going to solve all right. of the problems when in reality they were just used again as part of the surveillance state against activists. So what is the likelihood that this is going, that the Camden model will be the bipartisan solution to what happened in Minneapolis? Right. The you know I think the Camden model is the most dangerous idea circulating in like elite circles today, and it's not simply because what it means about police reform, it's what it means about you know the entire, uh, the entire, you know the specificities of social order today. So in the in the article I try to the Jacobin article I try to put the current debate in Camden in relation to you know, these previous peculiar institutions that have shaped U.S. history. So it's often said we went from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration. And what I fear is that Camden is is a is an image of our next nightmare future, our next peculiar institution, which would be mass supervision. And in each of these, you know, each of these peculiar institutions are, you know, they're, they're systems of of racial domination, but they're also very specific ways of, of uh, that the economy has been organized. Right. So when I look at what Camden represents, right, it's, you know, it's a city that's at the center of it's a city that never recovered from deindustrialization. It has, you know, uh, these acute, serious social problems that are becoming, you know, more generalized. Right. The more people are being left out of the economy and the covid depression is just hastening this. Right. It means more people are going to be, you know, hustling, struggling to survive, going to the informal economy, right? The center of Camden's economy has been drugs for a long time. That brings a lot of violence and interpersonal harm. Meanwhile, we have this example in, 
you know, Camden since 2013, where they turned the city into a site for uh, investment while, um, you know, c- cutting the cut, cutting down the government, right? Uh, you know, doing the um, hollowing out of the government. You know, it was union busting. Uh, well, and you know, creating a new police force that could drive down crime and and make people feel well, right? So Camden today, you know, is you know is surveillance city, and I fear you know under the pressure of the you know COVID and the and the depression, which are um, you know accelerating existing trends towards decarceration we're going to see, you know, a generalization of the Camden model where surveillance is used to manage, you know, the, the, the interpersonal harms created by capitalist insecurity, manage them at a distance, manage them in such a way that you can have, you know, glittering urban cores that are, you know, productive sites of accumulation surrounded by, you know, uh, the planet of slums you know, and and uh, this is how you know capital capitalism will will die as the 20th century progresses, and more and more people, or 21st century progresses, and more and more people are squeezed out. Right? When we think about this politically, you know, I think it works bipartisan uh, on a bipartisan basis for two reasons. Democrats like it because it's smart, it's technocratic. You know, um, it's uh, you, you know it, it fits their their image. But it's also totally compatible with a tough law and, law and order politics. You know, it's um, you know the, the liberals can emphasize community policing, the the law and order types can emphasize surveillance, you know, quick response time, you know, crime reduction. Um, so it's you know I think it's incredibly dangerous, and I think um, you know I think uh, it could you know the, the the real danger is that you know these righteous calls to defund the police could be rolled into these larger austerity measures, you know, and that the demands for structural change will get narrowed down into procedural reforms. And, you know, Camden will be, will be, uh, you know, will be global Camden soon enough, right? It will be the, the model for a new logic of economic, you know, not just economic regulation, but, you know, uh, racial domination through, you know, surveillance and aggressive policing. You mentioned Camden's illegal narcotics trade and what an impact that has on crime in the area. You write, according to the state troopers and intelligence analysis analysts I interviewed at the New Jersey State Police's Intelligence Center, the city has some of the purest heroin in north in the Northeast and is the starting point or one of the starting points for the heroin trade. It's hard to get a decent job in Camden, but according to police and intelligence analysts, a drug set can make easily $20,000 in a day. Under these conditions, it is easy to appreciate why Camden is a harbinger for a new peculiar institution, mass supervision. So, Brendan, is mass supervision particularly effective in dealing with drug crime? Are we all suffering from mass surveillance because the police are focused on drug crime, which can be reined in through surveillance? Is the problem that the police are viewing all of us as drug dealers? Well, I think, I mean, I think the problem is that, you know, policing and security in general is a, you know, it's a, it's takes everything that's communal and it tries to turn it into something bourgeois. So what do I mean by that? Right? It takes, you know, what we call work, right? Or what you, you know, subsistence, the work of meeting your needs and, you know, uh, turns it into something you do for a, for a wage, right? So the origins of policing are, you know, the destruction of co- the commons and the, you know, forcing people to work for, for a wage and, and, in industrializing Europe. Um, so when we think about this in the context of de-industrializing Camden, right, or, you know, anywhere in the United States that's being, or the global economy that's being squeezed out of the formal economy, what do you expect people to do, right? They don't have your, you know, capitalism doesn't say here's a great job. It says you have to work to live. And if you can't find work, then what are you going to do? You're going to make work. And, you know, for reasons that are self-evident, the, the drug trade is, is a good source of money. Right. Um, so the you know the 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 there is no police there is no police answer to uh, crime because police isn't policing isn't supposed to solve crime. It's supposed to manage crime and use the threat of crime and the fear of crime as a weapon to divide the deserving poor from the undeserving poor, respectable people from criminalized people, 
and you know uh, force as many people they can that they can to work and live and commit to the you know the grinding gears of capitalist productivity, right? Um, so you know when we talk about drugs, I mean you know drugs have been around as long as hu- as long as humans have, right? It's not a, a, a you know, uh, prohibition is not a serious solution. Policing is not a serious solution. I would point to the example of, you know, Portugal that's, you know, decriminalized drug use uh, and created a robust public health infrastructure to to specifically deal with the problems of drugs. And, you know, what, what happened? They have, you know, the best numbers in, in, in the world, more or less, uh, on the matter. So what I would, you know, that's how I would respond to the, the issue of drugs is kind of by reading it and saying it's, you know, not about drugs, but it's about the relationship between crime and poverty and how policing manages that relationship in such a way to really fabricate labor markets into, 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 you know, um, yeah, into manage, manage labor markets. We are speaking with criminologist Brendan McQuaid, who wrote the Jacobin article, The Camden Model is Not a Model, It's an Obstacle to Real Change. Brendan is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine, and he's author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Surveillance. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. Brendan was on back in December to discuss his book, Pacifying the Homeland. And while we focused on context and details last time, I want to get a little bit bigger picture this time, Brendan. You write the current focus on the Camden model also carries greater historical significance because it represents something much larger than the failures of liberal reform in the face of popular rebellion. Camden is a glimpse of a nightmare future of mass supervision, as you were saying, the next potential mutation of the various peculiar institutions of racist control and class domination that have shaped capitalism in the United States. To what extent are the failures of policing, the failures of liberalism? Can we address the problems with policing without addressing the problems with policing? And if not, what are liberalism's problems that we need to consider when thinking about the police? Well, I mean, I, what I would say to that is that, you know, policing's failures aren't liberalism's failures. Like, this is how the system is designed to work, right? And if we think of, like, the, you know, you know, it's not just police that's, you know, a social service, what we mis- misrecognize as a social service, and it's actually a system of labor market regulation. You know, so is all of social policy. So Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward's, you know, classic book, uh, Punishing the Poor, you know, talks about social welfare in this 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 light, where you know, uh, welfare agent welfare benefits, you know, expand during lean times when the economy is rough to, you know, prevent uh, insurrection, to prevent disturbances, right? And then it contracts during. Uh, boom times to force people to work because the goal of social welfare is not to meet people's basic human needs is to force people to work for a wage and to manage the insecurities of that system right so liberally that's you know uh, there's a long history of the police idea and um, you know the way it interacted with liberalism is you know a complex and important story but the short of it is like police is a, is a you know police in more generally security are absolutely foundational to liberal thought. And they're the way that, um, you know, that, 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 you, that we think about managing poverty and managing structural racism and managing all the other violent exclusions and oppressions created under capitalism. It's how we, you know, police security is how we think about managing that without, you know, changing it with, with maintaining the system, right? So if we want, if we want to take the demands from, you know, George Floyd demonstrations, from BLM, you know, from other movements, seriously, we need to, we, you know, we need systems transition. And that requires taking on, you know, not taking on the foundational um, structures, not just of, you know, the state, of the state authority of the police, but also of, you know, the capitalist economy that the modern state, you know, maintains. Right, so that's why you know I'll, uh, I think the most important thing I can say to to anyone who wants to act politically in this moment, or the most important bit of analysis, is that the opposite of of the policing is is the commons, and for you know defund the police to be more than shifting money to the soft social police and, and creating you know a slightly different different but still terrible form of oppression. Right, we need to we need to you know 
not only defund the police, but reinvest in care and recreate the commons. But the New York and, Times... And liber- oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, and liberalism is, is is dedicated to erasing that analysis, to, you know, it's even it's hard to even think that question if you're thinking in terms of liberal political theory. You need to go to Marxism, you need to go to decolonial theories, you need to go outside of the realm of liberal thought. The New York Times says that uh, despite that early onset of mass surveillance in the Camden model by the Camden County Police, uh, they have softened that surveillance role. And in the article, in the front page article that actually had a jump page in the New York Times, they only mentioned the word surveillance once. So to what degree has surveillance been softened in Camden? Can we at least find solace in the Camden model that, sure, they went a little bit overboard with surveillance at the beginning, but eventually they reined it in? Well, it's not the surveillance that's softened. It's the aggressive, you know, when the Camden reformed Camden County Police came out in, in 2013, they came out with a super aggressive, you know, broken window style enforcement. And, you know, they backed off that under community pressure, and it's really the, the leadership of the Camden NAACP. And, uh, you know, Stephen Danley at Rutgers Camden is the, the authority on this. And he had a good editorial in the op-ed, in the uh, Washington Post about the role of, you know, Camden movements in in changing the Camden police for, for the better. Um, you know, that said, you know, surveillance still continues in Camden. You know, it's just not connected to aggressive, um, aggressive enforcement of, of, uh, you know, quality of life issues, so-called quality of life issues, broken windows policing. Uh, you know, detail in a, in a different article I wrote for The Appeal, a little bit more about how, less about the big picture stuff and more about how policing works in Camden. You know, in, you know Camden has a, it's called a real-time tactical uh, operations and intelligence center, a local fusion center, a local police intelligence center that takes in all this data, you know, not just the the you know, police data and demographic data and video cameras, uh, but also field contact cards that cops pull, uh, fill out every time they interact with someone. They take all that data and they use it to direct the police to the point where they do, you know, they do virtual per- patrols, right? They they literally have analysts who every inch of Camden, Camden is covered in surveillance cameras, and they have analysts sitting at their intel center you know, patrolling the streets by, you know, taking control of different cameras and, you know, watching the, um, you know, watching, um, you know, what's what's going on. And it's just gotten to the point where, like, they don't even do, I heard from some, some folks in Camden, you know, complaints that the police don't even, that there aren't even detectives anymore. They just go back and look at the, at the surveillance film, right? Um, so if you're actually concerned about interpersonal harm, right, uh, you know, if you want police to investigate violent crime, Camden's not a not a serious answer, right? It's a it's a it's a, an attempt to avoid responsibility and it's an attempt to, you know, uh, take a step back from you know the dirty work of policing, manage it through a distance, through mass surveillance, and the media friendly optics of community policing. So don't believe the hype. Camden's a disaster. What do we miss in our understanding of this moment when we only see it as an opportunity to end injustice and not for a collective freedom to flourish as you hope it is? What do we miss when we believe the issue is one of a few reforms, not collective freedom? Well, right. I mean, that's, you know, policing, it's, it's about you know, what, what is policing really about? You know, and it's not about our safety. It's about the security of our order. It's about the security of private property. And our, what, what, is, what, what would actually meet the safety of the mass majority of people is the end of this system, right? Like, it doesn't take a, a rock and scientist to understand that, like, we live in a, an amazing world of, 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 of material abundance, Right? There's no reason for poverty to exist in, in the world today. It does, right? And it's because of, it's because of the, you know, that we organize society around, around private property, right? So when we think about taking, you know, the demands of Black Lives Matter seriously and, you know, really thinking about what defund the police means, it means about, you know, a world outside of this narrow, you know, bourgeois idea of security, right? In a, in a world, a world, um, you know, a world organized around human flourishing. And here, you know, there's there's a lot of 
bad faith arguments and uh, strange positions being taken by people on the socialist left who are trying to draw a sharp distinction between abolition and socialism, right? And that's that's just garbage, and it can't be defended intellectually, right? Uh, abolition is, a, is an older political tradition than socialism, right? And it's intersected with, predates and intersects with socialism in complicated ways. And, you know, abolition has always raised socialist questions because it basically asks, the, the question of abolition is, how are we going to use our shared resources? How are we going to use, use our efforts and our life to care for each other and address each other's needs? You know, that's, that's socialism, right? They have different points. Maybe they have different points of empty entry. Socialism is concerned with, you know, or communism is concerned with, you know, more concerned, directly concerned with material reproduction. And abolition, you know, maybe starts with, with the fight against oppression, right? Uh, but they arrive at the same place. Right, and I think you know that's the the type of analysis I'm pushing on police is 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 you know I think dedicated to to that project to seeing the organic uh, holistic overlaps between you know struggles for collective freedom and struggles struggles to to ensure everyone's basic needs are met. Right, and I'm, I'm excited right now about you know some of the conversations that are happening in the U.S. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, the narrow-minded <laughs> class versus socialists will, will find a seat at the table and stop trying and stop mucking things up with, with bad faith arguments. What impact has mass surveillance had on political organizing in Camden? To what extent were activists and organizers pacified just like the rest of the population has been? Well, I mean, it is interesting. You know, Camden hasn't had the big, unruly, disruptive demonstrations that have characterized, you know, some other cities since Ferguson. And I think part of that has to do with the, you know, with the the, the way community policing can pacify, um, can pacify um, a certain amount of discontent. So I was talking to, you know, a guy who does, um, you know, he's very critical of the police. But he, you know, does all does like youth leadership development programs, uh, and you know, he said, well, the Camden police, there's still, you know, there's still a lot of issues, but they've, you know, there's someone I know in the Camden police, so, you know, if I have a problem, and he cited an example of like some somebody just joyriding on football fields and tearing them up and making them, you know, not great to play on, that he could call the police department, and then they'd actually send a cop car out there that, you know, the next night and you know, stop people from driving on the street. So that's new, right? So there's, you know, there's a way in which that the Camden model of mass supervision in community policing has won a certain amount of popular legitimacy, right? And it's gotten gotten some praise in the media for, you know, cops in Camden were quick to march with BLM protesters. Um, you know, but then there's also been, you know, there's been uh, demonstrations in Camden that have been critical of the police. So, you know, the the same issues it's it's not it hasn't resolved resolved the um you know, hasn't stabilized politics completely and created, you know, the the perfect harmonious consensus that liberals fantasize about. It's there's still conflict there, right? And um you know, policing mollifies it in some ways, but so do other things. Like Camden is a poor, desperate city, you know, it doesn't it's not exactly a political center. You know, I wonder what the proximity of, of Philadelphia does to, to Camden's politics and how that may be the, you know, the center of more more militant organizing and the energies that may exist in Camden might get sucked in there, for example. But, um, you know, the, the you know I, I want to be very clear, you know, Camden, I'm calling Camden garbage, but it's dangerous, right? And it does work, and it could be a real solution to not only the post-Ferguson crisis of police legitimacy or the post-George Floyd crisis of police legitimacy, but also the, you know, the uh, growing challenges of managing increased insecurity and violence and interpersonal harm in, you know, a capitalist system that is uh, becoming more and more unstable and more and more reliant on exclusion, you know, and predatory forms of appropriation and uh, exploitation, right? 
earlier this year, we spoke with historian Vincent Brown about his book, Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. Vincent argues that it's best to look at the 400 years of slavery as a transoceanic war that was necessary in order to impose a system of slavery, and that at no time was it simply accepted as the new normal. Instead, it can constantly faced armed uprisings. Were those slave revolts, those uprisings, even the Civil War, are those best viewed as revolutions against the basis of capitalism? Was the war on slavery a war against capitalism? And is it best understood that way? Is what is happening right now best not seen as uh, protests against police violence, but protests against the processes of capitalism? I mean, it's, you know, every, if we think of these two moments, if we think of like the collapse of slavery and what's going on right now, you know, they're not one thing, right? So the Civil War, I mean, it did build, you know, slave revolts were absolutely essential. And more so than that, the, the what W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction called the General Strike, right? At a certain point in the war, the Confederacy's back was broken when slaves started, you know, mass defecting, going on strike, so to speak, and joining, you know, the Union Army. Um, so, uh, so that was happening. But the Civil War also, you know, was the the industrializing North imposing a new capitalist order on the South, and the plantation economy wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't compatible with that, right? So the Civil War, it was the second half of the American Revolution, so to speak, you know, common argument, but it also was the, you know, rationalization of U.S. capitalism to move the United States from, like, you know, what we call a middle-income country and what, uh, you know, friend of the show Kevin Harris would know as a um, semi-peripheral country to move from a semi-peripheral country to a core country to a proper um, proper, uh, you know, world power. So there's multiple, there's different <laughs> tendencies at work and different positions at work in, in this moment of contestion and rupture, right? So right now it's the same thing going on, right? There's people fighting for, fighting for all sorts of things. There's, I think, a serious radical alternative that's brewing people that, you know, understand that defunding the police means, you know, uh, dismantling and transforming capitalist civilization into something different, right? But then there's also people that are viewing, that are trying to thread that Camden needle and, you know, re-legitimize the system, change everything so it all may remain the same, right? And then, you know, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's the best answer I can give you on that. <laughs> That's all right. And thanks for the shout out to the radical pessimist, Kevin Harris. That was very nice of you. We've been speaking with criminologist Brendan McQuaid, who wrote the Jacobin article, The Camden Model is Not a Model, It's an Obstacle to Real Change. He's an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and author of Pacifying the Homeland Intelligence Fusion and Mass Surveillance, which we spoke with Brendan about back in December of last year. And you can hear that interview at thisishell.com. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. And as we always do, our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response the trump campaign is now running ads arguing joe biden will not only defund police but according to their commercial under biden when you call 911 you will get an automated voice who explains the next available officer can be scheduled for some time in the far off future leading to a world plagued by rape and murder also in the ad, Brendan, the hand calling 911 is using an old school push button phone that has the receiver attached to the base by a cord, like the kind of phone they discontinued about 25 years ago and only your grandpa- grandparents own. So I don't know if that's the message they're sending, that old <laughs> people who use these kinds of phone are going to be victims of rape and murder. I'm not too sure. But how bad was it for Camden when they lost police? Should Camden be a warning to all of us that we cannot defund the police or reform them without putting all our lives at risk? To what degree do we, to what extent do we need police for our own personal safety? Well, I mean, so Camden, things did get bad in Camden. They fired, you know, uh, 138 officers, I believe, they, you know, 168 of, a hun- of 368 officers, you know, uh, after uh, Christie imposed austerity on the city, um, you know, at the remaining cops responded with sick outs, you know, violence uh, went through the roof, the city became number one 
in in violent crime, right? Um, so or in murder. Uh, so that's you know that's real. You know, in under capitalist conditions, the police do keep a lid on you know on crime, but they can't resolve it, right? So the solution is can never just be defund the police. Right. If it becomes defund the police, there will be, you know, and it gets defund the police gets rolled into a larger austerity program. And it's also, you know, defund the schools and defund everything else good and decent the government may do. Um, then then it's going to be bad and it's not going to, you know, it will play into the hands of authoritarians and reactionaries. So that's why I think it's so to to draw the link between, you know, policing and the, the fabrication of social order, right? That policing isn't about law enforcement, but it's about order maintenance and order construction. To draw that link and to say, you know, not only do we need to defund the police, but we need to reinvest and reimagine, like, new for, new social policy mechanisms that are actually going to create the world that, that we want to live in. And luckily for us, like, that's happening right now. You know, that's happening right now in the abolitionist movement, in, you know, in, uh, you know, DSA, in, you know, in, in all sorts of social movements. So, um, you know, they're, they're in all of these, you know, anytime there's a political rupture, there's the opportunity for exhilarating victories or, or crushing defeats. And I think, um, you know, Camden is a crushing defeat, but, you know, there's an exhilarating victory that... Um, you know, that we have to fight for and an important part of that fight is is making clear that defund the police won't be enough. We need to reinvest in care, we need to recreate the commons, we need to think about transitioning to a system that will allow humanity to, you know, survive the twenty first century. Brendan, thank you so much for being back on our show and everybody should definitely follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. And you can go to thisishell.com and listen to our interview that provides a lot of the history and the context of the Camden model from December 2019 with Brendan. All you have to do is search on his last name, McQuaid, at thisishell.com. Thanks so much for being back on our show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and honor. All right, take care. Live from late capitalism. He said it was an honor last time, too, and it freaked me out, and it freaks me out again. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on July 15th, 1888, 132 years ago this Wednesday, near Fukushima, Japan, nearly, or sorry, near Fukushima, Japan, three early morning earthquake tremors in rapid succession were quickly followed by the explosion of Mount Bandai, which spewed poisonous gases into the sky and sent red-hot pyroclastic flows tumbling into the surrounding farms and villages, burying some of them permanently. Sounds like a perfect location for a nuclear power plant. It was the mountain's first major eruption in more than a thousand years, and it remains the most serious volcanic disaster in Japan's recent history. Almost 500 people were killed, and many hundreds more were injured or left homeless. The volcano also altered the geography of the area, changing the course of rivers and creating several new lakes that are now popular tourist destinations, all of which points to the perfect location for a nuclear reactor. And I'm starting to wonder why we didn't get this context when the tsunami hit Fukushima and disabled their nuclear reactor a few years ago. In Rotten History, July 17, 1981, 39 years ago this Friday, about 1,600 people were gathered for a festive reception and dance in the high-ceilinged lobby at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, when they heard loud popping noises come from a balcony walkway suspended four stories above the main floor overlooking the room. And it's probably not champagne, as this is rotten history. Some 16 to 20 guests were standing on that balcony with another 40 or so people on another walkway, two stories directly below it. Partygoers looked up and saw the fourth floor walkway suddenly drop several inches as the people standing on it looked confused and began moving toward the doors. Confused? I would be scared as hell. And when I am scared as hell, I'm not confused. I'm singularly focused on my own survival. Moments later, with an enormous crash, the walkway collapsed, dropping into the second floor walkway directly below it, and both structures hit the lobby floor, crushing the crowd below, which is why I don't go to the Hyatt, and that, and I cannot afford staying at the Hyatt. Two things that keep me away from the Hyatt. 
It took 14 hours for emergency rescue workers using heavy industrial equipment to dig and saw through massive piles of steel, glass, and concrete to get at all the people trapped in the wreckage. In some cases, they had to cut dead bodies into pieces in order to reach people who were still alive. See, I told you it's rotten history. One surgeon on the scene was forced to use a chainsaw to amputate a man's crushed leg and free him from the wreckage. total of 114 people were killed, more than 200 injured. One of the rescue workers, reportedly distraught by the experience, later committed suicide. An inquiry revealed that the catastrophic failure had been caused by design flaws resulting from a tangled web of last-minute changes, miscommunication, and unexamined, unexamined assumptions by architects, material vendors, and engineers and inspectors, some of whom were criminally charged, but finally acquitted. Of course, a series of Pulitzer Prize-winning investigations reports in the Kansas City Star would cite economic woes of the late 1970s as a factor in pressuring builders to rush the construction of the hotel, which had opened just a year before the deadly collapse. And I'm pretty sure past this is how guest William Black was one of the people in that investigation. Now that's rotten history. And this is hell. Alex, what's happening on the rest of this week's show? Okay, uh, tomorrow, that's Tuesday at 10 a.m., we're going to be talking with Marquise Bay uh, back to talk about their book, Anarcho-Blackness, Notes Towards a Black Anarchism. Uh, Wednesday at 10 a.m., we are still working on it, trying to do something uh, that you're not hearing about anywhere else in the media, which is why it's kind of hard to find writing about it. Uh, but we're working on that for Wednesday. Try, uh, and then Thursday... Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Palast will be back on the show to talk about his book, How Trump Stole 2020. Uh, let's see. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell, and we will be reading some of your answers. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Brendan McQuaid, today's guest. Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History, and always special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood for all of the work that they do behind the scenes here at the show. We told you. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>